Hey listeners, and welcome to the Lunar New Year release of 2021. This is Alex, your host of EOA Entrepreneurs of Asia. Today's episode was recorded a few months back with my good friend Zhang Gan Li, founder of Momentum Works. Momentum Works started as a venture accelerator and eventually picked up multiple revenue streams from consulting to venture building, running a very popular blog from China to Southeast Asia. This episode covers Jangan's background and many of his views from education in China and Singapore, the effects of communism on entrepreneurship in China, his early start in journalism and how that served him as an entrepreneur later on when he joined Rocket Internet. We also cover business school, the current state of rideshare, what it takes to succeed in China, founding Momentum Works, going wide versus going deep as a founder, and much, much more. Just like Jangan's career, we will go very wide here and discuss many topics of interest that are impactful for the Asia region. Let's dive right in. Welcome to the show. Thank you for your time today. Hi. Today with us, we have Jangan Lee. Uh, you can follow him on the Twitter at J-I-A-N, G-G-A-N, right? I've not seen a namesake in my life. So I haven't found anyone who has the yes. same name. Yes, you have a very unique name, which is something I'll ask you about later. So Jangan yeah. is the CEO of Momentum Works. Uh, Jangan, in one concise sentence, what is Momentum Works? It's a venture outfit, which uh, does a bit of everything in the, in the ecosystem, from building to consulting to writing. Yeah, and I guess uh, some of the... So it's so a venture builder. It does some content and also does some consulting, uh, some corporate work. And under under the venture builders, you had companies like Pasar Pinjam, right? Which I think yep. you ex- exited already. Yep, that, that, quite right. lucky. So that was right. your first first yes. exit. Uh, Halal Node, which I, I don't know, is that still ongoing or? No, we had to shut it down. It was uh, too ambitious. Things fail, yeah. Yeah, and I think the one of the more famous things about Momentum Works is the media side, which is the blog you guys run, which is called the Lowdown, right? Uh, yes, and uh, and in fact, uh, something interesting is that we also have a blog on WeChat in Chinese, and uh, that is actually more popular compared to the lowdown. I think it's uh, way also oh, like it's not considered under the lowdown. It's definitely has a bigger audience and a bigger community, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember the last time you guys did some type of YouTube view, you had over fifty thousand like live people watching, right? Eighty thousand, yeah. Eighty thousand. Oh, that's crazy. Um, most most yeah. people in China, yeah. Uh, previously, before this, you had positions as an EIR at ANSIAD. You were an adjunct faculty at Singapore Management University. Briefly, uh, managing director at Food Panda. And uh, how we got to know each other is we were both working at Easy Taxi mm-hmm. back uh, from 2013. And then your very first start in your career was Alphabet Media, right? Which was a small company when I joined, a bigger company when I left. And uh, I'm not sure what they're still there. So before we begin, though, something about your name. What, what exactly does your name mean and how do you pronounce it? Jiangka, uh in Mandarin, uh, different, I mean, pronounced different in, in my dialect, which is, um, uh, which is the tongue of a, of a, of a small town near Shanghai. And it's, uh, it's, it's kind of transitional between, between Mandarin and, uh, and Shanghainese, which, um, which whenever I was, I mean, when I first came to Singapore, when I was uh, speaking uh, to my parents on the phone and people, pe- people next to me were always thinking that I was speaking Japanese, but uh, apparently <laughs> that was the case. Um, okay. Yeah. So I was born near, um, my mom was working in a hospital, um, right on a bank of Yangtze. So, 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 so Jiang means, which literally means like a big river. So, and, and Gan is something, something to do with jade. So basically some, some kind of jade. Like jade river. Yeah. No, jade next to river, jade in the river. Jade in the river. And I guess, uh, 
I don't know, Jade, Jade is highly priced, right? And I guess Rivers have a lot of meetings, so it's a pretty good name. So, um, as, as I said, I've never seen a, seen a namesake in my life, uh, which, uh, um, which is interesting because, uh, because I don't have to sort of, I mean, whenever people look at my name, they, they sort of remember, hey, this is unique, but they always have a part of problem pronouncing because um, the way it's spelled out, it's a bit different. Um, there, there's, a, there's a district in, in the city of Hanzhou where Alibaba is, uh, which has the same, so, sort of, it's a district called Jiangan, but... Uh, oh, yeah. But in Chinese, it's um, um, it's written differently. But but of course, we transcribe that into 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 Pinyin. It, it looks the same. Mm. Mm. Okay. So tell me, how would your friends describe you now? Uh, interesting question. Um, I think I think one description that 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 I heard uh, uh, a few times is um, tangential. What does that mean? Always going off a tangent. Oh, tangent. Oh, tangential. Okay, so always coming off on a tangent. Okay. Yeah, that's a tough question. So, um, yeah, I think at, at, at different stages of life, um, there's there's a bit of difference, and, and sort of you hang out with the with different groups of people. Um, but at this stage, I guess I guess many people are saying that oh, um, I like to network. I know lots of people, and um, I can always pull people together very easily. Um, but which is actually really against my nature. Um, Not really? I, I did a personality test. Uh, I'm def definitely introvert. Oh, well, no. In, so introverts, I feel, can connect with people um, in, in different ways that extroverts maybe are, are not wired to. And I think that's, I mean, I wouldn't say just because you're introvert doesn't mean you can't connect uh, to many people on, on, on a maybe deeper level and build different types of relationships, right? Yep, that's right. And my colleagues say that uh, I'm too serious. Really? They say you're too serious. Well, I guess because they, they know you um, from a work setting and, and there's a lot of on your plate to juggle. Uh, but like, I, I think I've known you since 2013. So it was only like, what, seven, seven years plus. And I, I definitely see more aspects to, to the other than the serious side. You know, you could also be quite, quite the jokester, right? <laughs> uh, and uh, very friendly when, when you know, and, and, a, and a good friend overall. Mm. Um, how, how has being tangential served you then? I suppose, I mean, I, I, I don't do much of that now, but uh, but I think when Wikipedia first came out, I mean, one of my favorite activities was just going through Wikipedia, clicking links, and uh, always ending up spending like, I don't know, four, five hours on that when I was free and over the weekend. Um, Initially, it was just just pure interest, right? You like to read a lot, and you, you, you and on different subjects, and talk to lots to, to to a lot of people. Um, but as you grow older, and uh, just feel that things which are seemingly disconnected with very weak links, with jumping from one thing to another, mm. then to another again. Um, after I realized that that we try to think to solve a problem, things just click, right? I mean, just find links between things, and uh, yeah. Um, just to give you an example, which might be a bit lame. Once I was, uh, I was, I was at the supermarket and uh, the trolley bag was empty. Um, so, 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 so my wife uh, so went to ask the, 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 the shop assistant where to find the trolley. And at the same time, I just went straight to the, to the parking lot. And uh, because, because <laughs> I put in my mind, okay, I mean, the trolleys are not here. They must be at another place because... Because in Singapore, you have to like put a coin when you put, mm. put a trolley. So, so, so the purpose of that is to 
to for you to put things in order. So things must be order in order. Things must be at another place. So yeah. so lots of things um, came this way, and um, um, I think the positive side is that uh, whenever you try to look for a specific piece of information, because you see the linkage, you, you can easily find something adjacent, and 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 through that, uh, lead to whatever you're trying to find. Um, but the downside is that sometimes it's just uh, it just just too much activity in your, in your brain. Yeah. I mean, definitely it serves you as a founder, as an entrepreneur going wide, mm -hmm. right? Often like early stage in building ventures, you have to be a generalist and, you know, you have to know enough to talk on the same level as experts to keep up with them. And, and, and sometimes even know as much as them, but, you know, it has to be across many disciplines to get people together to, to be a good leader for, for that kind of type of venture. Right. So I think, I think in a sense, you know, it helped you. Yeah. I think, I think that point is actually quite important. Um, um, my first job, um, I started as a journalist, so so I was uh, covering a specific trade, and, and part of that was to do something to do with the hospitals using IT systems. So I, I think because I studied in sort of engineering university, so that served me well because I sort of understood the systems. But um, but being able to to be seen as part of them by all those like hospital CIOs and stuff um, made it much easier for you to learn that's a that's a that's a very good point so actually in a sense like having some type of journalistic background or instinct will definitely serve you as a founder and entrepreneur as well oh, it does it does i mean it, it makes you sort of naturally curious and and uh, and mm. it's to find information and try to make linkage between different pieces of information um definitely helps um i, I don't know how to quantify that but uh, but definitely i mean sometimes when it comes to problem solving um at least at least you are able to sort of see different things and come up with different possible solutions. But whether you can actually solve the problem, that, that that's the execution issue, which is separate. Yeah. Ex execution, of course, is a different thing. And uh, mm -hmm. I would like to point out, you know, uh, Jason Calacanis, the, the famous angel investor in Silicon Valley, his background is also in journalism too, I think, uh, and media, right? So mm -hmm. I definitely think there's an overlap that that's quite interesting. Mm -hmm. So I kind of want to go back now to, um, so I have a handful of friends that I'm probably going to talk to and so the first person I talked to was Amy Chan. She's mm. from Shanghai uh, originally. Mm. Uh, and she told us about her time in communist China. So I don't think she has a monopoly on this. I think you have your own stories too, right? So mm. you also grew up in communist China. Is that correct? Um, I grew up in China, which was run by the Communist Party. Are you okay to reveal your age or are we staying away from that? So, um, okay. I mean, maybe a more sensitive time, like 1989, uh, when I was six. Yeah. And that, that was when the thing happened in Beijing, right? The, the, the Tiananmen Square incident. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. So that, that was a time um, I was about to enter primary school. And I remember there's like every day, there's like gruesome images on TV and stuff. Um, parents got really worried and they said the things might be coming or whatever. And, and then, then like, a, a, I think a year after, then you see the... Uh, yeah. The Soviet Union being dissolved and, uh, and it's just, 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 huge air of uncertainty uh i, I mean before that uh, I, I know that there was a there, there was there was an age like in 1980s where people looked for liberal values and stuff um but um, but early 1990s there was a sense of i do remember when i was a kid i mean there was a sense of anxiety across the society and and things were, were starting to undergo rapid changes um, yeah and i mean that was definitely rooted in I guess, in a sense, the the Cultural Revolution happened in the eighties, right? And, in, in, uh, that kind of that, that went far, far out, right? That went far out, and then I think you know, I guess the time you're talking about was the transfer of uh, I don't know how to pronounce his name, Deng Xiaoping, 
right? And then I, I think that's before, I guess, China cracked open and, and, and joined the world trade and, and thing, things started to boom, right? Yep. Um, um, the WTO, definitely, definitely a major game changer. Mm -hmm. I mean, in my hometown, you see factories being built at a very, very rapid speed. And uh, you see people getting rich and people start buying cars. Mm. Uh, yeah, I think everything happened after, after I think it was still 2001, 2002, after China joined the WTO and uh, everything happened very, very fast. Mm -hmm. And what, what, I mean, we're, so at least uh, when I talked to Amy, she was talking about hardships of having, like, you know, the, you are allotted food coupons. And then, of course, she, she would like hoard them for herself. Like, were, were there hardships that you saw or was your family just lucky to be better well off? Or what was that like? Uh, where's uh, her family from? Part of Shanghai, I'm not too sure. P pretty much Shanghai somewhere in Shanghai. I mean, that's pretty broad and big. Uh -oh. So, uh, uh, yeah. yeah that, that, that. Um, I, I don't remember things being particularly hard, um, but but probably, I mean, parents would have different concerns, yeah. right? I mean, yeah. my, my, my mom always told me that when she was young, I mean, 1950s, 1960s, it was it was much, much harder. Mm. And, uh, and after the Cultural Revolution, generally things were on, on, a, on a positive trajectory. So... So, so every like two or three years, they can feel that visibly is better yeah. than two or three years before. I mean, in terms of um, at least the material, material wealth, mm -hmm. and, um, and 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 she was telling me that I mean, all these people complaining about like, you know things being hard in nineteen nineties, and then not things, <laughs> seeing things in like nineteen fifties and early nineteen sixties. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, definitely different time but, periods. Uh, one thing that's interesting is that I mean, I, I think that happens to me, and also happens to lots of uh, sort of. Um, friends working as entrepreneurs in China and outside China, but from China, is people of my generation who, who grew up at least until high school and left after sort of for university, etc. Mm -hmm. So um, so their sense is that, uh, I mean, when they were a kid, so they look at uh, the, the education in primary school, everything was nice, you know, communism was nice, mm -hmm. even though that China was not practicing communism. Yeah. Uh, and afterwards, afterwards, I mean, when, when, when you go to high school, when, when, when you start receiving information from outside, you started doubting everything. You thought everything was a lie. Oh, wow. Okay. And the world was not as rosy, especially in late 1990s and early 2000s. There was lots of corruption. So so you see things which are not as nice as, uh, as, as they de depict in, in sort of primary or high school um, textbooks. Um, but as you grow older, I mean, especially when you start running companies, you start to appreciate... Um, things that uh, that i mean as the as the leader of the country right i mean with the small stone with Stan shopping mm -hmm. they had to balance i mean it's not it's not that okay you pursue a, a agenda that's morally right and things will work yeah you have to balance lots of lots of different interests lots of legacy and uh and lots of people trying to pull you back interesting this year during during the pandemic um some of my entrepreneur friends in beijing have all studied at the same time read the works of, of Mao Zedong mm. and how he supplied the revolution yeah. and the idea of uh, creating like a strategic mm -hmm. depth in the countryside before surrounding the cities yeah. and how do you deal with like a much, much um, bigger and, uh, and a well-equipped uh, competitor. Mm -hmm. And this kind of thing, I mean, they draw lots of like, you know, no, no, no things that could like could learn. But I mean, it doesn't mean that things things were morally right, but, uh, but, but definitely, I mean, if you're in a position um, of creating a company, and versus, I mean, and, and in a hard situation versus 
uh, and then we are going against much bigger competitors. Mm. Uh, so it's so there are lessons to be learned. I mean, it, it sounds almost very SoftBank uh, philosophy. Uh, you could even draw mm. parallels to like uh, the the U.S. elections of what we just saw. Uh, you can you mm. can even compare to, like you know the, like what what you said about how difficult and how big China is uh, versus when mm. you look at you know Singapore and how small and how they made things efficient. It's just a completely different mm. problem set. You know, and sometimes you can draw parallels, sometimes you can't. Um, so definitely, mm -hmm. it, I think you're, you're right, you know, looking back to the history, it's a lot of those lessons can apply in terms of strategy and entrepreneurship, for sure. Yeah, but we look at people, I mean, your parents are, are, are originally from Vietnam, right? Yeah. I mean, if you um, if, if you look at a history of people who left the country at different periods of time, and their memory about countries. Oh, very, very different, yeah. And the perception about how the country is doing now is very different. Very different, and... It, it, that depends on how much with, of of what they held on to in the past and and those emotions yeah. and also yeah. uh, their their current ties back home. You know, like uh, it's very interesting because yeah. a lot of my parents' friends would actually talk to me. I talk to my to my mm -hmm. parents and say, "Oh, why do you let your son stay in Asia? You know, we we left there and what's he doing there?" And uh, I think they don't realize yeah. that life is actually pretty good here. So, yeah. so 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 what were you like as a child then? Like, um, who, who is Zhang Gan and was you know is he different from you now or is he pretty much the same? My dad. Um, worked in, in a school and um, and I think at some point of time he had to volunteer to teach my class because I was creating lots of trouble in the class like you know yeah, pointing out mistakes by the teachers <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and playing with the kids who, who had the, who had the lowest grade and they said oh, you are in terms of like, academic performance rank number two or number three um in the whole promotion, and they should not spend time with those guys who are at the bottom. So, so definitely not very obedient. And I think the worst record I had was uh, I was summoned by the director of discipline of the school six times. Six times, okay. In, in a single day. In a day. Oh my God, what were you doing? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, just not showing up at the morning exercise, um, cutting a queue at the school canteen. You know, making too much noise after the 10 p.m. in in a, in a dorm. Ah, so you lived in a dorm? Okay. I went when I was in high school. Yeah, I was living in a dorm. Yeah. Um, so it sounds like you had a rebel streak early on. I mean, it almost sounds like you were meant for entrepreneurship, and you just didn't conform and listen to what people were telling you. Yeah, kind of. Yeah. And, but but at the same time, you were also good at school. Um, it sounds like it was quite easy for you, or did you have to work hard? Like, what was like? Because people always talk about China, Korea, Japan. Uh, nations where academic pressures for young people are are massive, right? Did, did you feel this kind of pressure for competition, especially in like a really highly competitive nation like China? When I look at my sort of cousins, uh, nephews, niece, who are much younger than me, and I definitely feel that they had lots of lots of pressure. But uh, but in nineteen nineties, when I was when I was doing school, um, I somehow feel that the pressure was not that high, mm. and um, and and also probably because my dad was working at a school, so so I had pretty good ex uh, exposure. So I do remember, I mean, a few times during the weekends, I was just hanging out with the school uh, library. So so he was showing me the books and uh, and told me stuff, and and lots of these things came sort of naturally. Mm -hmm. So I didn't have like work very hard towards that. So that made lots of things easier for me. I would say that I was a little bit privileged in that particular school. So that made my life e a bit easier, but uh, but I, I certainly did see people who were working much, much harder than I was, um, but um, but probably achieving the same or even less. So that in a way sort of changed my perspective about 
I mean, working hard versus sort of working smart, working smart, or sort of channeling your energy towards the right places, mm, prioritizing correctly. And that's a, that's an interesting lesson early on. Um, mm. Do do you think like modern pressures that your nieces and nephews face now is is it tied to the growth of wealth or where where is this new pressure coming from in in the modern sense? I think lots of pressure came from the parents. So from being wealthy, because, right, or not having opportunity, or no, I mean the the competition amongst the parents. Mm. I mean, of course, I mean so so back in nineteen nineties, everybody was a lot more or less equal. I mean, some people are slightly more sort of privileged because they held to civil service positions or whatever. Um, but in terms of material wealth, people are more or less equal. And now it's vastly different, and uh, and that creates competitive pressure. I mean, you think about when they organize um, sort of school outings, and then when parents came, of course they came with different cars yeah. and different kinds of wealth. <laughs> and, and 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 you know that in in a sort of East Asian setting, it's competitive. So so that creates pressure. And uh, and parents want their kids to be competitive. So I remember w- when I was growing up. I mean, the school would end at six forty p.m. and and in primary school, mm. but but you didn't have to work afterwards. Okay. But nowadays, I mean, it's, it's hard to imagine a kid not having to work after six forty p.m. Wow. Okay. Def- definitely mm. different lives, and mm-hmm. I guess even in Singapore, you still see that element too. Do you, Do you know any um, friends of yours in Singapore who have children? Do, do they face the same pressures? Uh, they do. Um, they feel that there's lots of pressure, but uh, but I think it's definitely more competitive in China. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Yeah. So, I mean, you did really well at school, and you ended up getting a full scholarship to go to university in Singapore from the Singapore government, right? Mm-hmm. Um, how, you know, was it because you just did really well? And I guess back then, Singapore was very open to accepting more foreign talent, or how, how did you get the scholarship? I think there were a number of programs that Singapore had with China and also a few other countries where they offer scholarship for people at different stages of studies to, to come to Singapore. So, um, so I, I, I don't know how that worked, but, uh, but that particular year, the, the school came to, I mean, I think, I think the Ministry of Education of Singapore came to, our municipality is saying that, hey, um, select a few top schools, rec- mm-hmm. recommend a few people and go through a test. If they are keen, they can, they can come to Singapore to, 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 to study. Uh, all, all expenses covered, but they have the obligation to work in Singapore for a number of years afterwards. Um, um, so, so me and a few friends, we went for the test and uh, some of us passed. And, uh, and I think most of us decided to take it. Um, um, the, there are like one or two who decided not to take it because they said, okay, Singapore is too far away. It's a very small place. And do I really want to commit a number of years there? Mm. And because at that time it was not as impressive as mm. it is today. Mm. True. And then you, you chose to do computer engineering at uh, Nanyang Technology University. Yeah. The pure reason was that, I mean, I think, um, so the scholarship came with the strings attached. So ah, you, okay. And uh, that, that's that's available if you study uh, science or, or engineering courses. Okay. So, um, so the reason why I went for computer engineering was um, uh, funny. Uh, it was not well thought after, and it was um, <laughs> as most young people. Yeah. So when we first came to Singapore, you would have uh, um, I think I think a bit more than a year of courses in English and also the science um, the science disciplines and. Um, I think at that time I really, really hated 
uh, our professor of chemistry, and mm. uh, I, just, I just didn't I didn't have any chemistry with that guy. So, <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so when I was picking which um, uh, which measure to go for university, and um, um, you know, at that time, I mean, Singapore sort of mandated all engineering students to to go through this like a year course of common engineering. Yeah. And uh, computer engineering was the only course that you didn't have to go through this. And uh, I said, okay, this is the only course that I don't okay. have. To, I don't have to study a year of chemistry, so that's why I picked that. So it's more more of a young person's kind of choice. And did you end up hating it or loving it, or what was that like? I mean, there were aspects I liked. I mean, the coding part I actually liked liked doing. And uh, I mean, we we, we studied like you know, you know, writing the codes and. Uh, and compiling that and then things get rendered. Um, that's kind of fun because you feel that you are creating something. Yeah. Um, I didn't like some of the professors. Uh, I specifically remember one episode where I went to a class and I was asking a question and the professor said that this is beyond the scope of this course. <laughs> I mean, that, yeah, that's, that's uh, not a good response. I, I just felt it was a bit too, too limiting. That's how you kill curiosity in a young person, right? Yep, 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 yep. I mean, you, you, you could try to answer that. Then they add add a note saying that. By the way, you don't have to worry about that mm -hmm. because I, I think most people care too much about the exams in university. But that's um, very that's very much a Singapore thing, right? I, I don't know. I mean, so I, I understand when you, when you care about sort of exams in high school, but the university, I mean, the results really don't matter. Yeah, that much as much uh, at university. You're saying, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's it's true. I mean, it really depends, though. Uh, so if your if your degree requires foundational knowledge where like your industry needs you to get a master's and a PhD, then, then they kind of matter in that sense. Like say economics, mm -hmm. if you want to be at the top of like the federal reserve or a bank or something, right? Like you kind of need it, but it's especially engineering or being a doctor. But other than that, I would have to in general agree with you that, you know, it's not, not so uh, important at that stage. Um, mm -hmm. So why, why didn't you end up pursuing it? Why, why drop computer engineering after graduation? Yeah. I remember that that clause um, in the in the sort of scholarship contract that you are supposed to work in Singapore afterwards. Yeah, and um, I think many of my classmates wanted to work in banks, but um, but but the problem at that time in banks in Singapore, and I'm not I'm not sure whether it's still the case now, is that you really didn't have any position where you create stuff. It's it's basically most of most of them working in sort of kind of maintenance. Jobs. As an IT you person, basically. As an IT person, not as an engineer. Yeah. And I didn't know that um, until I, I went to Paris for an exchange when I was in the third year of university. And uh, I remember I had a long discussion with one professor there, and uh, he was basically telling me that as an engineer, you're supposed to create things. Yeah. <laughs> so you didn't know that. You didn't realize what your degree and the impact. Um, yeah, I mean, you're supposed to, to build things. Yeah. And things that you are not supposed to be there to to maintain a system, and that's what a technician does. That's not what an engineer does. So, what do, what do you think people should be pursuing these days uh, in terms of education? Should they be going to school? Should they not be bothering? Uh, what, what's possible? Do you think? I think when I was, um, I think going for exchange was definitely a good thing. I picked that. Uh, I picked that school in Paris for for exchange because um, because I, I mean read a lot about Paris and um, and sort of. Um, wanted to sort of experience that. What I didn't know is that I ended up in, in a fairly small school where they had only, I think at that time, like 15 or 16 international students. Mm. What was the, what was the uh, name of the school? It's called FK. 
Yeah, so it's uh, in in the suburbs of uh, Paris called the Villa Juif, the Jewish town, um, and um, and it was um, it was small, like one thousand two hundred people, and uh, very few international students, um, which initially was tough because uh, I think most of the courses, aside from one class called European Union, all the other classes were conducted in French, and that was tough. Um, I had friends who went to sort of different parts of Europe. Uh, they went to bigger universities where they had lots of like international students and they had very, very good cultural exchange and stuff. And for me, it was, um, it was, uh, it was a bit tough in the beginning because you, I mean, you go to class, you don't understand anything. <laughs> oh, oh, I mean, for me, I didn't really go to the class, but, uh, but, but I mean, at least you hope to have that kind of experience. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but after a few months, you realize it was actually cool because once you start understanding what's going on, you start start hanging out with people who we previously couldn't have a conversation because at that time i mean the uh, the young french didn't really speak good english yeah. I mean, not so so yeah it was good exposure and um i think now now especially the universities in singapore start to mandate i mean not mandate but encourage people to to go out to different places mm. uh, and, and and that i think it's a very very cool thing during my time so sort of sort of most people would go to canada mm-hmm. would go to sweden would go to the UK and a few would go to like obscure places like France or, or Denmark mm-hmm. and uh, nobody would go to Indonesia so but but now it's much more diverse I mean we have people going to Korea people going to Poland people going to like smaller cities in China and uh, and and that that gives people different exposure to see that the, the world the world can be very different so, so essentially are you saying then that that you still think there's a really good value prop- proposition for the current education system I, I mean the system is there and um and, and it's almost like a game that you go through, and how 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 do you play it? And uh, mm. and, and I mean, what types of scores that uh, that you will put emphasis on, and we come out, and how do you differ from from like four years or three years uh, earlier when you went in? Now I think uh, there's this debate like, okay, dropouts work out better than people who who waste time in university, but um, but I just don't feel that. Uh, that argument is based on proper statistics. It was more sort of based on exceptions. Probably based on survivorship bias of what we consider yeah. successful, right? So, um, yeah, that, that, that. how was your transition then from from China to Singapore? Was it a culture shock, or was it what you expected? Was it better? Uh, it was a culture shock, and a um, number of things. First, um, first in terms of food, and uh, the noodles here are very different from the noodles <laughs> you would see in China. How are they different? Um. I think back in my hometown next to Shanghai, and uh, the noodles I mean, would be similar to what you find um, in Japanese stores. So it's, it's white, it's, it's a bit smooth, mm. uh, and, and I think they put it in this alkaline water or something. So it has uh, yes, it's a different see. texture, yeah, yeah and, and, and different taste. It's just different. So 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 of course it uh, it took a while to to to, to adapt to. And um, oh yeah, I remember one thing I was particularly not used to. Uh, is is the quiet learning year? I think Singapore banned uh, fireworks. Ah, long time. okay. So the New Year's was very quiet. New Year was very quiet, quiet, and that was not something that I was used to. I mean, you, you're used to like playing with the firecrackers and stuff, and, and which I know it's not safe. It's not environmentally friendly, but when you were a kid, that, that was lots of fun. Yeah, I mean, I think you can come over to Malaysia. It's it's still very loud uh, for every single New Year, from Hari Raya yeah. to Deepavali to to the Chinese I don't New think Year. It's in Malaysia, it's just uh, just how the law is enforced. Yeah, that that's true. Yeah, that that's true. Um, yeah. so so there was no, there was no really negative experience per se. Like you weren't treated 
being, you know, like a second class citizen because you're from China or, or did you have any bad experiences there? Um, I had like some bad experience. I had some bad experiences in France as well. And, uh, um, but once you have seen a lot more and uh, most of the experience was positive, you tend to sort of forget the bad experience mm, unless cool. whatever you have is really, really bad. Yeah. Traumatic. So that's in general, it's just what you would expect from just shitty people probably. Right. Yeah. That, that, you see bad people everywhere. I mean, yeah. I, I, I go back to China and see bad people and just everywhere. And some people think I'm bad. So, <laughs> well, I guess that will depend on the context. Right. Um, so, yeah. so what, what does China do right that the rest of the world maybe gets wrong? Well, what do you mean? What do they, what do you think they do something better that people could learn from, you know, China? Yeah. Oh, a lot of things. Um, certain things can be learned. Certain things can't be learned. Um, so for instance, cultural evolution, is mm. it bad or is it good? Uh, of course, I mean, most people will say, oh, it's bad because it destroyed traditional culture. Um, but but, but, but in, if you try to build a business in China, you will see that um, they actually swept lots of historical baggage away. Okay. So you, you, feel, you feel that when, when people are trying to build uh, enterprises in the 1980s, they didn't have this cultural baggage. And, and when the government was trying to reform certain things, they didn't have the, the baggage of traditional value. And if you look at the... The young people in China now, they're probably much more, I don't know what's the right word to, to describe that, liberated or sort of carefree, whatever, even compared to the... Well, I mean, it's like, it's, it's like the youth in Vietnam right now, mm. right? They, they don't have a conception of what the war is, but it's not mm. because of a cultural revolution, right? It's just they were born in a different time period and things are much more prosperous now. So mm. in a sense, you know, it's just more like... Um, Starting off with the clean slate, I guess. Yeah, because before that, I mean, um, before the communist came, I mean, so so I actually read quite a bit of history when I when I first came to Singapore because in a school library you would have books that you didn't have access to in China. So so I actually spent lots of time reading there. Mm. It looked back to see what lots of the things that uh, that the communist government did, and the previous government and the one which lost the civil war and tried to do something similar, but they just couldn't, just couldn't because there's so much resistance from from people with existing interests. To, mm-hmm. to maintain the system as status quo. I have the sense that, I mean, so the communists actually swept lots of things into the dustbin and uh, left a clean sheet for people to build on. And, and things can be wild. I mean, some people are saying that people in China have lost faith because young people didn't really care about ancestors, what old people did a lot. Mm. And they didn't really care about religion. Mm. And, um, and things became a little oh. bit more pragmatic, um, people care about money. Uh, is it a good thing or is it a bad thing? I don't know, but it certainly allowed um, entrepreneurship to prosper. That, that's a very interesting point. Like, I mean, like, so if we're going to read in between the lines and trying to pull the lesson, mm. um, I mean, I don't think we're, we're advocating people start wiping out culture, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> no, but I mean, like, what, what China did, I, yeah. I mean, it's like you said, we're not sure if it's right or wrong. That, that's a tough one to crack. But the result of what happened in, you know, communist China and then opening up, you know, uh, mm. China is a powerhouse now today. They are mm. the, roughly the same size as the U.S. economy. Mm. Uh, innovation is happening in its different flavor. And I guess, I guess you know, if one were to want to take time to look at it, they have to dissect that a little bit more to take the learnings. But that's, I guess that's, that's what you're pointing to, right? And also think about that. I mean, they swept all the previous land titles away. And um, and put all the land ownership to the state. So afterwards, when they try to create the infrastructure, it became much easier. 
in the, in the in the modern debate now for the for America, U.S. Right, everyone's talking about how will you unite the country and have a divide of two very different classes of people from the rural to the coastal elites. Mm. Um, I mean, again, we're not we're not advocating for a cultural wipeout, but mm. in, in a sense, you have to come to a place where it could just everyone could reach the same level, then build on that, right? I, I do think there's a there's, there's a big divide uh, between coastal China and uh, and, and rural, rural China. I mean, it's, it's, I think it's going to be everywhere, right? It's, it's even everywhere. in Malaysia, except Singapore. Singapore is a city state, right? Uh, I think even Singapore, you still feel that. I mean, um, so we go around uh, Orchard Road is very different from when you go around some of the sort of uh, sort of uh, government housing areas in the north and in the west. You still you feel know, it's, it's, it's a very good point. When I take taxis and mm. I ask them about their life in Singapore, mm. they, they tell me it's a struggle every single day, which is, you know, I go talk to my banker friends, man, everyone's, you know, having parties, going to yeah, KTV yeah, and blah, blah, blah. Right. So it's, the, you're, I think you're definitely right. That's still, there is still a class divide even there. Yeah, it is. It is. And, uh, and it's something that, uh, that the policymakers need to balance because the, because Singapore is still a democracy and uh, you still need to make sure that, uh, I mean, the interest of the most people is taken care of because otherwise, um, otherwise you will become unstable. Definitely, definitely. And I think that's going to be the, the challenge for the future generations. How about Singapore? What what do they get right that the world could learn from? I think I, I think Lee Kuan Yew is definitely a great, great, great politician, and uh, and uh, and he focused on lots of things which were right. I, I do remember that uh, that that when I was in um, university, there was a course called Engineers and Society, mm-hmm. uh, which basically taught about the values of Singapore government and the principles, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I remember there was one word which was uh, repeated over and over. Is called pragmatism. Okay. So not bound by sort of ideology, not bound by um, sort of certain value, what is right or what is not right, but 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 doing things which are practical, which serve the purpose. I mean, think about that. I think Nick Wanyu said before that Singapore will never have a casino, but now Singapore has two casinos. Think about that. <laughs> yes. Well, they they also restrict locals from from using them, right? But they still have them. Yes, correct. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it, 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 you know, like I think a lot of your personality, what I'm realizing is, is based in your context. Like that, what you said about Singapore, about pragmatism mm-hmm. could equally apply, apply to what happened post-cultural revolution in China and opening up, right? Mm-hmm. It's about being more pragmatic and letting go of the ideology of the past for, mm-hmm. to make way for, for a future. And, and I guess Singapore comes from the same place where their future was massively uncertain post-World War II, right? Mm-hmm. And, and they had to kind of navigate that and figure it out. And I guess that's their, their manifesto in a sense when they're teaching these things uh, for the young. And, um, and I think, you know, do, do you think that's influenced you and your personality and your thinking? I think definitely. Um, I'm, I might not be able to summarize that, 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 that in a very concise way, but definitely there's a there's big impact. I mean, like for me as a friend personally, to me, that's where I, I could see it, I think, you know, and, and it helps me understand you as better as a person, I think, and, and hearing your story. So, but so let's, let's, let's fast forward. Let's, let's jump to your first experience then. Um, after NTU, you graduated and your first job for six years was in a company called Alphabet Media. I tried to do research. Um, interestingly enough, their domain goes to a gray market casino online betting website now. I think that's the company <laughs> shot in. 20, I don't know, 2014, 2015. Okay, so they shut down and someone took the domain. A few years after I left, I, I left in uh, 2012 um, after five and a half years, basically. Yeah. And I was trying to read on LinkedIn what it was, but it seemed like it was a combination of like a, a think tank, a research, media, and what was what exactly was it? I started as a media company and uh, doing trade publications focused on government and, uh, and basically public sector. Okay. So, so, so so publications on how technology is adopted in public sector. And um, I joined a company, I was, was by chance. 
it was purely by chance. Um, so when I was back from from Paris, I was I was broke because you know Paris was quite expensive for students. Yes. Was, was um was on free housing and a limited sort of allowance from Singapore, but in Paris you have to pay the rent and everything, and uh, and also mm. the life in Paris. So it was quite expensive. So I was I was working quite a bit in my in my final year to pay off the the debts. And um, what, what were you doing? Different things. I I I did like credit control for a Singapore f- furniture manufacturer on the Southern European market for about three months. So basically calling people saying that, hey, um, you have to pay. <laughs> Chasing credit, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good skill to have. Um, I, yeah, it was also funny that, that whenever I was saying that, okay, I was calling from Singapore, and uh, you see most people didn't know where Singapore was. Uh, Interesting, really? We were calling like uh, like people, I mean, distributors and uh, and uh, and resellers in sort of small towns in France, in uh, okay. in Spain, and some of them eat, Italy as well, yeah. They didn't even realize where where their their stuff was coming from. I didn't know. Just didn't know where Singapore was. And uh, I was also working as uh, as interpreter for conferences. Um, so so that 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 was paying pretty well for a university student. So I did simultaneous uh, interpretation for for a few conferences. Okay. Um, uh, that was interesting. And also French, Chinese, Eng- English. French, English, Chinese. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So so it was fun and. Um, and, and one of the conferences, I, I, I bumped into the founder of this company, and he just started. Um, a guy from the UK graduated from uh, Oxford with a, with a degree in history, and uh, he was working sort of publishing, and um, and and he, he just started his own publication. And uh, the mm-hmm. team sounded fun, and he said, "Do you want to come and work and join us?" So I had a, had a chat with a, with a few people in the team, and that's how I ended up there. Yeah, and I think this is where you're, you start to develop your journalistics chops, right? You, yep, you start perfect. to focus in media, publishing, uh, have to do journalistic work. Yeah. Um, and I feel like this was very quite pivotal because a lot of what I see in Momentum Works today mm. probably came from this experience, right? For the at least the, the, the blog side, the publishing side, the media side. Um, yeah, I, I, I think I do see the influence of media. But uh, but also see the uh, limitation of media. So 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 this is something maybe subconsciously I'm trying to balance, right? I mean, I've been trying to build that kind of influence, um, that kind of that kind of sharing, that kind of community, but without I mean, building a me- media business model. Even even mm. what I, yeah. I see what you mean. And yeah. So what, what was what was your main job back then, and what were some of the the accomplishments? Or I mean, it, was, like- it was a small company, so it was really a bit of everything. So I studied. I studied um, on the content side, so planning the content, writing the content, speaking with people, interviewing people, traveling around, talking to people, and and then of course, I mean, you sort of help the business side of, of the business. At that time, it was media business, so, so so the revenue will come from sponsorship, advertising, as well as um, um, as well as commission research, right? So. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so talking to clients, so trying to sound smart, trying to try, try yeah. get into communities, and um, and also, um, and also at some point of time, I was I think I was a bit bored of uh, bored bored of staying in Singapore. So, so, so sort of, I sort of convinced the, the company to start a bureau in Hong Kong. So I went there a lot. That was fun, and uh, but of course Hong Kong was still still a small place. So so went a bit ambitious. Went to Beijing, and I mean built a bureau and established relationships with, with, with the public sector as well as the ecosystem. Um, and then I realized that uh, that I mean that was the first time of me working in China. But working in China, it was it was very different from what I imagined, and um, mm. I almost felt that I couldn't communicate with people because 
if you are in Singapore and Hong Kong for too long, you tend to be very straightforward in, in the way you communicate. Okay, that was like uh, like almost like Americans or or how? I mean, just uh, just just we talk to people. It's straightforward and you understand. I mean, you tell your concerns, you tell what you like, yeah. mm. and uh, and when you went to Beijing, um, lots of things were cryptic. Interesting. People tell you things, but they don't really mean what they tell you. And, um, and 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 but people who live in that cultural context would be able to understand. Uh, understand. Um, I suppose I suppose that's different from the tech companies now, but uh, but okay. Beijing with the because I was dealing with the public sector. True, the public sector. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I guess what about Shanghai? Would it be the same, different? A bit different. Um, one thing I realized when I was uh, when I was in Beijing for about eight months and I was traveling around in China, um, which was actually quite quite experienced back then. So you you feel that you have a few parallel worlds going on in Beijing or in Shanghai. Mm-hmm. So in Beijing you would have the government, um, you have the military who is who is something of its own. Somebody with a military uh, number plate would would be able to park anywhere, and uh, and the, the the Beijing municipal authority would not be able to find him. Mm-hmm. And then you have the state-owned enterprises. You have the um, you have the people who work for MNCs, and you have the people who um, you have the artists, and, and all these people sort of are, are forming like parallel societies. That yeah, it was uh, yeah, it was was very very different. One, I think one metaphor I use is that I mean, when you go to Beijing, you have uh, so people people like to go to uh, barbecue skewers in China now. And young people they hang out with their friends with with the, with the barbecue skewer and a beer, right? Um, so in Beijing, you could find places which sell you one skewer for 50 yuan, which is like a half um, yuan. Mm. But you also find places which, which essentially sell the same thing for, for 20 yuan. And both places will be packed. So I mean, it's just, just a massive world. Yeah. I mean, you just have different different levels of consumption I and mean, different groups of people who, 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 don't, who, who don't really hang out with each other. Mm. I suppose that you see that in, in in some cities in Vietnam as well. You have very cheap places, you have very 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 um, expensive places, um, but people sort of essentially are consuming the same thing. I I, th- I think that's developing more. So yeah. so one of my friends, um, her family, she helped launch and run this new coffee chain called Runam Coffee, mm. and that's essentially Vietnamese coffee, mm. but. You know, instead of drinking on the street, it's like a fancy, rest, like fancy cafe, essentially. And mm. it really just took off. Like I think the timing was right a few mm. years back when they kind of launched it. Mm. But I mean, in general, it's very similar to other Southeast Asian countries where it's just very much street food. Mm. And that's their conception of what food is. And we had actually quite a few good food episodes discussing that dynamic, mm. uh, you know, for the challenges of F&B entrepreneur. But um, mm. I, I, think, I think to your point, though, it's more like you were operating in these countries and it's a challenge because it's not maybe as homogenous as say Singapore or other places where you're used to like maybe very two distinct classes and not as much wide range, I guess. And that's what you see in a big market like China when you're operating, right? In terms of the, the, the way the business is conducted, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's less straightforward and, uh, mm. and, and there are different coasts that we interact with different, different, different people. So, so yeah. Is, is that why a lot of foreign companies fail when entering China? Famously, like Rocket Internet or other big con- companies in general, why like Walmart just recently failed, right? Or was that in Japan? <laughs> so uh, well, Japan, I think. <laughs> Walmart failed in Japan, and uh, yeah, I, I I do suppose that I think each big country would have its own set of 
own set of like rules, a set of conduct. Customers are different, etc., etc. But bigger markets would attract more capital than local players of smaller markets. So they are able to evolve better because of, because because they have a big market and they have more people believing in them. Maybe one metaphor I can use is that uh, I do remember when I was um, when I was doing my exchange in France, I, it took, I did take a bit of a uh, time to travel around Europe and. Uh, and you felt that uh, I, I remember when I was going to um, Denmark and uh, and Sweden, people speak um, people, people spoke much better English compared to people mm. in France back then. And um, and initially, I was I mean, so I was trying to find out why, right? And uh, and yeah. uh, and and then I realized that um, at, at that time, many of the TV programs, many of the sort of the, 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 the say US TV series. Yeah. broadcast just in English in those countries, but in, yeah. in France it was dubbed in French. Yes, yes. And yes. Uh, and why it was dubbed in, Fran- in French is because in France the market is big enough. I mean, it's, it's worth the effort to to localize. But I guess yeah. So I guess but because of a, a cost issue, then then from from a education standpoint, English became more widespread because of media being in its own language, which is very interesting. I think I, I, I think everybody went for English classes. I mean, in China, in my age, I mean, everybody started learning English at, uh, at the primary four. But, uh, mm. but, but because, because of the, the mass media, and uh, I, I think lots of people of, of my age learned English through watching Friends over and over again. So I know lots of mm. people who, 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 Friends. Okay. who did that because, I mean, if you if you watch things in in Chinese TV and everything was uh, was stopped. Also, let's go back to the main point mm. then. Why why do you think these these foreign companies can't succeed in China? I think same reason why 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 Chinese tech companies Can do we... not really succeed in Southeast Asia. And I guess that that's your point to exposure, I guess, right? Different contexts and not being able to adapt around that and just trying to apply their own context, which is like the whole point of talking about English in other countries. Um, I think that's the starting point, but uh, but but it's, it's much bigger than that, right? I mean, so of course, uh, yeah. it's much more complex than that. You would have issues of, um, for instance, um, when you start a a business in China, and uh, who do you install as the as the, as the, as the general manager or country manager or, or CEO of that, mm. that that business, and 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 that person does that person come from a head headquarters to hire locally, and how much you hire abroad? Yeah. And how much trust do you give to that person? And if that person comes and tells you that, oh, this market is very different, I have to act in my own way. Um, how much do you trust him? And if that person yeah. has to interact with uh, the different departments, I mean, if, say, for instance, uh, American e-commerce company going to China, I mean, same as Chinese e-commerce company coming to Southeast Asia, right? Um, mm. And and it, it's, it's not just, I mean, the country manager interacting with the group CEO, it's... Um, it's it's logistics, it's payment, it's 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 merchandising, and and, and, yep. and different things have to work together. So, so, so naturally, you are not as fast as a as a team that's that that that's that that's purely local uh, locally based because they 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 know they sense things in the market and also they are able to respond because everyone understands. I mean, just think your days at East Taxi trying to explain to the to the to the tech team in Brazil about certain market specifics <laughs> in, in Vietnam. It's just hard. Yeah. It's just hard. I mean, because people, yeah. people are not there. They can't understand the problem in the same way as you do. Yeah, I mean, and, and product as a result moved a lot slower mm. at that global scale, which was very different from Zalora. Like I felt Zalora was so fast. And and like the, even though the product team was based in Portugal, 
um, I guess by, by nature that we were only focused on Southeast Asia, yep. just made things ship a lot faster. Um, yep. We had a very good localized, even though she was Portuguese, she was localized to the markets mm. being based there and could understand and translate very well. So I think I think that was a big difference and a big shock. You're right. So sure. um, is, are there any, any examples in China where there was a successful tech company that's foreign, that's doing well? Uh, Microsoft, but Microsoft is different, right? It's, it's, it's a monopoly. Yeah. It's enterprise sales. Yes, correct, correct. And um, uh, I think Uber did relatively well, uh, at least in terms of the return, right? They, they managed to, to merge with Didi at much higher valuation, even though it probably yeah. fell short of the of the ambitions of uh, Travis Kalanick, but still, I think in terms of returning, they did pretty okay. Um, yeah, I mean, even in Southeast Asia, I, I would argue like they're, they're, I mean, like it wasn't tenable, I think, mm. if they were going for IPO and profitability, mm. but like the strategy to retain equity and swap equity, well, very smart. Uh, for companies being successful in China, uh, um, Nothing can give nothing that comes nothing that stands out, right? So that's a very interesting point. Of course, cynics and other people argue is because uh, the Chinese government is protectionist, and there's got to be an element of that. But um, you know, I guess it is possible. Like there, there are some brands out there, I bet that that probably could succeed. I guess I, I feel that the Chinese government is less protectionist than these days. Than, than most people think. Because um, okay, okay. Imagine how much they, they they gave to Elon Musk for him to build a business of Tesla in China. That, Subsidies that's and a everything. Good point. Yeah. yeah. That's a good point. And like uh, the first time I went to China was in Guangzhou, and I was so shocked to see so many Tesla charging points everywhere. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. And, yeah. And, and strategically, it makes more sense for um for the Chinese leadership to turn Elon Musk into advocate for closer business ties with China than exactly. shutting him off, right? I mean, it's um, if, if, if much bigger strategic goals behind it. But of course, I mean, um, when it goes down to to the provincial and local level, they might, I mean, the officials there might not see things as strategic as the central leaders. Yeah. I mean, a common narrative I hear is that if you want to get to a unicorn status, the government has to give you a stamp of approval. Is that true to a degree? Or what do you know? I, I think depending on what kind of business you run, right? I mean, if you run a, a, um, a sort, of, sort of news business in China, uh, okay. news aggregator, and of course, that's, 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 that's much, more sensitive, sensitive. much more sensitive than if, you, if you're running an e-commerce business. Um, mm-hmm. I, I don't think Amazon ever had a uh, much sort of um, um, discriminatory treatment from the Chinese government. And uh, I think they, 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 they were competing with Alibaba on a, on a fairly fair, fair ground. But of course, I mean, for companies like Google and Facebook, um, so, so it, it's, it, it's naturally more difficult uh, for the government to allow them to, to give the same level of information access compared to what they would do in the West. Why, 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 why is that the, the case? What, what is the fear or, cause, cause it's not reciprocated. Like if mm. I feel if like uh, Baidu or um, the, the maps company in China wants to go to the US, they, they could just set up and, and go, mm. right? I, I think it's something to do with the, with, with the complexity of, uh, of, of governing that country. Mm. It's, it, it's complex. And um, I think, I think recently there, there, there's this, um, uh, this article, social media post by the, um, um, by the former foreign minister of Singapore. And he said he was, uh, he was in Xinjiang many years ago. And, um, and, and, and actually it's interesting that he, he wrote that on social media or, or, or in an article. He was in Xinjiang many years ago and, uh, and he was, uh, I think he was riding a horse and realized that she was, he was trying to talk to the girl who was sort of helping him and, and he realized that the girl didn't speak Mandarin. <laughs> and, uh, interesting. And he, he said, 
you said it could be problematic because in a country where all the business was conducted in Mandarin, and uh, and if you don't speak Mandarin, obviously you are going to be disadvantaged. Mm. But uh, if you force her to learn Mandarin, that's that that, that becomes a little bit sort of uh, I don't know. I mean, perceived as culturally insensitive, whatever. So it's uh, it, it's difficult. Is is that wasn't that how that was handled though in in the Cultural Revolution? Is unified under one language, and that's exactly what Singapore did too, right? They killed all the dialects in in Singapore. They killed all the dialects. I mean, you you even in China they tried to kill all the dialects, yeah, they, but that was and, too big. Um, they couldn't do it, right? Uh, it was difficult, but uh, I mean, it, means it was just hard to hard to be more enforced. But 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 I do remember when I when I was a kid. Uh, I mean, in my school it was okay, but in certain schools, um, if you speak di- dialect, you would be fine. Ah, interesting. Okay. Yeah. So so, but but that was also also a practical problem that faced. Um, I read um, a bit of a um, bit of history about the Second World War and where they were fighting against the Japanese and. Uh, um, Literally had regiments of uh, Chinese army coming from different provinces, could not able to communicate with each other. <laughs> that's, that's very fascinating. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's. I think people. Like, that's one thing people don't understand, like how massive and like so, like like America. It's America is so big that people just don't know anything beyond America, and that's how big mm-hmm. it can be. So, like mm-hmm. often, what you're hearing in the media is just media, but like the every daily life, they might not even understand some of these things you're talking about or can even talk to each other mm-hmm. within the same country, mm-hmm. right? So, it's a lot mm-hmm. more nuanced, I think, that people give and. To a degree, it's government. To a degree, it's not. And mm. to, sometimes it's just people chasing a sens- sensationalist story, right? It's complex. I mean, certain issues, um, certain issues are not black and white, and yeah. Um, yeah. and it's just difficult to, and if, it's difficult to appreciate unless you know the you know the context behind it. Yeah. Mm. Okay, so like I, it sounds like your first early experience, six years journalism, and it's kind of like your. Uh, running the business in a sense, you're doing everything like a generalist, right? And that sounds mm. like very good prep work for venture building later. So how how were you introduced to Rocket Internet and Easy Taxi by, I think it was November 2013, right? I went to INSEAD. I was a bit bored of, uh, of, of being uh, in the media company. Oh, that's right. There was a gap uh, from when you finished Alphabet Media. So you did INSEAD and then you got, mm. jumped into Easy Taxi. Mm. Mm. So I, I I went to business school because um the, the primary reason why I left is that I, I felt that there was a there was a ceiling of what trade media can do, mm. and as you grow to a certain size and you sort of ask yourself that I mean as organization do you continue to to push for more media organizations uh, so, so so more 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 media business or you try to um, leverage the community that you have built to do something else and that's a debate which uh, which. We, which went a bit to the dead end, and I was a bit bored because because I, after it had grown to a certain extent, uh, extent it, the growth kind of plateaued. So yeah, so, so it became less interesting. So 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 I, I, I left. I went to business business school and um, um, spent a year there. When I was graduating, I had this friend who was a Brazilian guy who was basically living next to me in the next house, and he was saying that hey, uh, he know he, he he knows a guy called Rodrigo Sampaio. Was uh, <laughs> oh he he knew he knew Rodrigo. Yeah, he was uh, he was working uh, at uh, he was working at McKinsey before Inciart, and Rodrigo okay, was his mentor. Uh, and uh, uh, and and he said, oh yeah, they 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 have a business which is coming to Asia. Do you want to give it a try? I mean, that's how I got into it. And and to be clear, Rodrigo Sampaio was, I guess, the right hand man for Oliver Samway, Rocket Internet for Latin America, basically. So he yeah, was the MD yeah. for Latin America, ran all the ventures. Yeah. Um, Okay, so and then what? So he, you said you were interested, in, and then uh, did you meet Dennis, the CEO of EC Taxi, back then, or what was happening? 
Uh, I think I had three hosts. I had one with, uh, uh, what's his name? Jose Shaliga. Okay. Uh, that was the, he was the COO at cool. the time, very shortly, right? Yeah. And uh, I had a call with Dennis and then I had a call with June. Ah, because June, yeah, June was the one who kicked off June, taxi. Yeah, from episode two. Yes. June was already there. So, so yeah. So, how, so. How, how was your call with June? What was that like? Uh, it was all right. Um, yeah. All right. So he just gave you like uh, no, no surprises or anything. Like a sicko story was that he talked to June the same day he was forced to come in and start working. No, no. I mean, I think at that time I, uh, I was um, I was I was just exploring. I was not fixated on this. And, and after I spoke with them, I, I actually went back to China for surgery. So I disappeared for two months. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah, uh, yeah. What, what was your conception of Rocket Internet back then? Like, what did you know about them, and what were you thinking? Uh, not much actually. So, um, so but but most of my friends they said, oh, the company has really really bad uh, reputation. We go to Glassdoor. Glassdoor's already existed by that time, and yeah. if you look at the ratings, so it's one point five, one point eight, two yeah. out of five. So it must be a horrible place. And um, and and to be honest, I mean, I, I remember for me as well as lots of uh, lots of people fresh out of sort of business school, you, you try to change what you were doing before, but. Uh, but you don't, have, yeah. you don't have you don't have a fixed idea of what you want to change this to. Interesting. But why, yes. why 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 is that the case? Why why do people why do so many people go into business school without the purpose? Right. I, I would think business school case makes a lot of sense if you know what you're going to get out of it. But it seems like people go in, they come out, they still have no clue when they come out. I I think many people go there to to find out. <laughs> but and then they find out they don't find out anything. Yeah. Um. Or, or or they find out what they had. Um. What they thought w- would make sense. Not really makes sense. Um, okay, so so there, okay, there's some positive outcome for some people, I guess. Then, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's exposure. Um, yeah, it's exposure for you to, to meet with different people, learn about things, and change your perception about the uh, about things. Yeah. Okay, so here's an interesting question because I think mm-hmm. out of our, our network of friends, you you are probably more famously like this uh, amazing networker with a, a vast networking and and. Um, you know, who know a lot of people deeply from all types of industries and, and wakes of life, right? But yeah. a lot of the argument people talk about of going to business school is they would want to go to acquire a network. Uh, do you think this is true or do you feel like no matter what, you would have had the same network because of who you are without business school? Well, I think I think business school doesn't really change you fundamentally as a person. It sort of uh, reinforces your your strength and uh, it just, it, I, I don't think it fundamentally, fundamentally changes you. Hmm. So essentially, so, no. Yeah. So you will see people. I mean, if you're going to business school and coming out, that I mean, they don't become transformed, but 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 they become empowered. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Hmm. Kind of like uh, finding your feet, I guess, in terms of business and, and reinforcing some concepts, right? Um, yep. But what? So what were the best parts of Rocket Internet that surprised you? Oh, I think I think um I think just um, just 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 bunch of people, young, reckless, and uh, and <laughs> very, very true. <laughs> yeah, and, and and trying to build things, trying to break things, and uh, and communications were super straightforward. Uh, you have like interesting metrics to play around with. You have budget to play around with. Um, so so yeah, I think it was fun, and I would I, I would imagine that people who were put in positions of rocket, say, uh, a, a country CEO would, would have much more fun than people who are putting. Or put at the at the at a different role. And I, I feel like that was like a kind of a once in a lifetime kind of thing. Like I, I don't think young people 
are going to have be empowered by so much uh, funding, so much autonomy, kind of like mm-hmm. how Rock Internet did it, and that, that allowed for huge amounts of growth. I, I can say, right? Uh, yes, but but it also creates this this, this bubble, right? I mean, and, and uh, you probably know that lots of people are trying to replicate that, and uh, after the Rocket experience, and they find it hard. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so, what were some of the worst aspects? Do you think then of Rocket Internet? Uh, worst or bad. I think for me, um, you're too focused on whatever you're building. It, 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 I mean, I, I, I remember I sent an email to Horigo Sampaio a few months into the job. I said, what is the strategy? And, uh, and he wrote me back all caps saying that, I mean, let's not waste time on this kind of useless discussion about strategy. Let's focus on execution and stuff. Um, all, all caps. <laughs> so all rocket. caps, yes. Yeah, all caps. And, uh, uh... and of, of course, for that... That context it made sense, but um, but but I mean, if the person running it, um, there's one aspect which was missing, which is think about what what do you do? Does it make sense? And if if, if things don't work out, and you see this natural tendency of pushing harder, you don't see the tendency of saying that okay, let's change the strategy, let's do that, because people are running, they're running fast. When you when you're running, you don't you don't think too much about is there a different path? Would different path be better? Uh, t- tunnel vision. Well, that's, I think that's exactly where we, we tripped up for Easy Taxi, right? We, we were so focused on taxi as the, the correct business model, especially when the unit economics never made sense, I guess, for Southeast Asia, mm. um, that we completely missed the whole black car thing, which I think the first COO, right? I think he tried to push that, but then he left soon after. So mm. I guess there was no discussion after that. Um, mm. So I think you're right. You know, I think one of the bad aspects is that... Um, Especially they're obsessed with operations and execution mm. that, that, you know, product suffers and strategy suffers. And especially in the app space that early on in the ecosystem, uh, you needed to get product experience, right? And I think Grab was just a little bit better. They weren't great. And Uber was just amazing, right? So mm. when we competed on that, no one ended up using our product. So I, I definitely think, at least for me, that's where I think Easy Taxi went wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what do you think? What, what do you think we did right though for Easy Taxi then? I think, I, I think operation wise, definitely, um, Definitely, we did lots of things, and um, I, I, I wouldn't say that we did a particularly right, but uh, but 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 the, these are areas that that I learned, and my learnings could be applied moving on. So the way to to, to run operations, to recruit people, I mean to to do marketing, to do PR, basically basically running a team, right? Running a team of yeah, different disciplines, and yeah. um, and and you realize that being a general manager is very very different from being a BU manager with a or being a line manager so it's uh, oh yeah yeah very and, different and, yeah yeah but from that to, to a real entrepreneur one thing missing is the strategy you have to worry about strategy Correct. you know yeah. you don't at rock you don't have to worry about strategy you don't have to, to, to worry about funding and you always have option to just quit yes correct yeah yeah i mean that that's a very good point like uh the, mm. the reason why i love zalora like they offered me the uh you know like a co-founder md position for thailand but mm. I was looking for that generalist knowledge, and I think you're right. That I got exactly what I was looking for in terms of working across so many different disciplines and, and pulling a team together. Um, and, and you astutely point out the weaknesses in the rocket context is that you you don't have develop that strategy muscle, and you don't develop. It's because it's given to you, and you just execute like hell. Um, yeah, um, and, but, but but also in a way, you can be a little bit more reckless because uh, because you know that you have option to quit. That's true. Yeah, it's not you don't have the. The fiduciary responsibility, um, mm. but you know that I think that is the social contract of Rocket, and I, I think mm. if you mm. work there long enough, you would understand it. Whereas people who only work there for a short time, six months, one year, like mm. they 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 see it as a bad thing per se, mm. right? But it's just literally you made that deal, right? So and yeah. you get you get the upside, but you also get the downside, right? Yeah. So 
Yeah. Um, and what, what are your thoughts of the current state of ride share now? Where, where does it go from here, especially looking at China, Middle East, US, Europe, Southeast Asia? What, do you, what are your thoughts on the current state of ride share? Um, I think ride share as a so pure play basis model, and it's, um, it's, it's not that, that attractive anymore. So um, un, un, unless you have like sort of like self-driving cars, et cetera, et cetera. So that's why I see that. I mean, have you seen the Uber, Uber share price over the last few weeks? I have not checked. What, where yeah, was that? It has grown a lot. I think it's now close to 50. Okay. Yeah, close to 50. And uh, I think a key thing is that it's, um, it's, it's making, making very, very big moves into uh, food delivery. Mm. I mean, they had an amazing head start already with Uber Eats, right? Like the, the, mm. the network effects from the car and combining food plus that network was a great innovation. Um, and in terms of that, do you think that's what everyone copied, investors copied, or like, like food seems to be the main obsession now, right? Um, do you, do you th- stemming from this, or do you think it's just individual innovation? I, I do think that uh, that, that, that uh, the, the major players are, are sort of looking at each other to see what makes sense, what they, what they can learn from. And uh, this company called Mintuan, uh, you guys probably know. Um, Mintuan, yeah. Uh, I mean, started as a, as a, as a, as a group from Copycat, then became the biggest um, food delivery company in China. And uh, for a long time, so the investors were, were worried about their um, unity economics and especially the, the, the huge on-demand delivery infrastructure. That was very expensive to to to, to establish and maintain. And would that yeah. make sense? And it was, it was always seen as a drag. Until this year, they started making quarterly profit, net mm. profit. So, so, so suddenly, suddenly, the whole logic changed, right? I mean, people, people, instead of seeing this as something expensive, um, uh, and people see that as infrastructure that could enable many other things. And suddenly you can imagine, okay, based on this on-demand, um, uh, highly efficient uh, local delivery infrastructure, what else can you build on top of that? I mean, mm-hmm. whether it's grocery, whether it's um, sort yeah. of a super, a supermarket, whatever, there, there are lots of things you can build on top of that. So, so I mean, essentially, you're, what, what I'm kind of trying to understand is then you're, you're saying that rideshare in itself was always just a Trojan horse. Uh, except for the exception of um, autonomous cars, right? If that's pulled off, then then it becomes valuable, right? And it's reflected in share price currently. But mm. if not, like if you're in the rideshare space, you have to innovate beyond that because rideshare mm. in itself is just not going to do it. Um, and everyone just kind of poured in billions and billions of dollars to build the infrastructure to build on it, right? Mm-hmm. I suppose... I suppose not everyone knows that, uh, that 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 this infrastructure is for something else. It's not just for red share. I mean, ju- just pure play red share is not that interesting. Yeah. Mm. Um, what are your thoughts around California Proposition Twenty Two? Do you under- do you know the legislation or no? Uh, roughly, but not in detail. Yeah. Uh, the general the general gist is that so all the companies like Uber, Lyft, uh, DoorDash, Postmates, they're they've put a ton of money to lobby this new piece of legislation where they would be exempt for giving uh, gig, gig workers benefits mm. as employees, right? So mm. bas- basically, um, I think they're trying to pass that <laughs> in California. So w- what are your thoughts around that? Because I know that Asia is always going to be far behind. But like, if this gets passed in California, you know, it, we will see how different governments around the world also react, right? In terms of um, you know, how gig economy workers are treated. Uh, I'm, I'm not very familiar with, uh, with the labor dynamics in California uh, course, or, or, or generally the sort of... Um, sort of um, employment trends but um but i suppose that uh, that each country you have to look at things differently right i mean um yeah. you have countries where where you have a large labor force and you're coming from the countryside in a city who have been doing informal jobs and uh, you also have i mean places um 
where people sort of choose to have um, informal jobs for flexibility. So I think that has to be valid. I mean, so for instance, in Southeast Asia, I mean, the reason why people to choose to, to, to be a grab driver or food delivery uh, rider is probably different from the reason why people to, 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 I mean, choose to become a uh, food delivery rider in Indonesia. So, I don't know, man. I, I, I talk... Uh, I mean, like I've talked to rideshare drivers all across Southeast Asia, and mm. I mean there are at least some common threads. Like people just love the flexibility; mm. they love the no contract, and they love mm. that they can make more money. It's either that they, they they're out of a job and they can make money, or they can make more money than their other job, right? And I think that's a common thread almost across Southeast Asia for every driver I talk to. I think the, I, I, I do believe that from society point of view, I mean, having stable empl- employment is always better than. Um, than being doing random jobs, yeah, yeah, and um, yeah, yeah. St- a stable income would allow you many things. Will allow you to save. I think people who take like red sh- 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 more, more more seriously are probably working that as full time job. Yes, correct. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, at least in the case of Malaysia, their their stance has always been to push regulation, right? So all mm. all of the e-hailing drivers are required to be licensed. They have to pay an annual license. They have to get checked, right? Mm. They have to follow SOPs. Mm. Um, I'm not too sure about other countries in Singapore, but like, uh, if, if that's the case, it feels like this is going to be a part of the cost structure going forward. Mm. I, I feel like if more regulation comes, but I'm not as familiar in, in other countries. I think, I, think, I think as far as regulation is, uh, is concerned, I'm, um, I'm less of a fundamentalist, like, you know, what is right or what is wrong, but I'm mm. sort of more of a pragmatist. I look at, okay, uh, any particular piece of regulation, what's the short-term and medium-term and long-term impact of, of, of on different players impacted by this regulation? I mean, the labor yeah. force, um, the, the employers, the, the economy in general, and, uh, yeah. and, and they decide what's right for the country. And uh, I, I don't think there's one size fit, fit, fit all. You're, you're, you're right in that sense, but you know, as a business owner, and if you decide to participate in the gig economy, if the cost structure is too high, you, you have to start looking somewhere else, and that destroys maybe a, a viable industry if it wasn't as regulated, right? Yep, yep, yep. yep, yeah. yep. And, but, but I guess that's the point, yeah. And also, I, I suppose at different stages of, of the development of the industry, I mean, the regulation probably needs to be adjusted to sort of nudge the industry towards the right direction. But I think in reality, it's quite hard, right? I mean, <sighs> Even if you look at the, the 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 financial regulation, you see this huge episode with the, what happened to Ant Group and um, oh, and, yes. and, 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 and 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 people tend to 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 put things in in a simplistic way. So what is right, what is wrong? But 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 how do you balance a sort of um, innovation and uh, and risk risk control? So it's um it's not something that you have a fixed answer. It's something that that that's dynamic. Yeah. So mm. so for so for our viewers who don't follow Chinese news as much, what was the gist of what happened with Ant Financial Group? Oh, um, the company was going for uh, through IPO. Then Jack Ma made a speech criticizing the regulators, and uh, the IPO was called off. So yeah, and that was supposed to be the biggest IPO ever in history. And then what? What is the effects of that? Do you think businesses in China are now looking somewhere else because of that? They, they didn't realize how much power Beijing had, or what? What, what do you think is going to happen going forward for businesses that look to IPO in China? Um, I think. I think people need to 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 understand more about what's really really going behind, and um, um, it's um it's 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 much more complicated than than what you see on on the surface, right? I mean, yeah. Um. So you have so so, so the main revenue profit of end group comes from these lending products. Yeah, and it's mainly targeted at young people. Mm-hmm. And uh, when young people take 
lot of leverage. Is that a good thing for the society or is that a bad thing for the society? And uh, it's hard to say. Yes, that's true. And uh, and, and, and and sometimes um, I mean, this is something for the regulators to to um, to, to, to balance. And sometimes it's not easy um, because I mean, the the, the the thing about regulators is that uh, if you don't regulate and people are saying that okay, and the companies are reckless, that are creating instability, that are creating risk, and if you regulate too much, you are stifling uh, innovation. So it's, yeah. um, it's it's very hard to to find a balance and. Um, and I think this is something that's that's, that's always dynamic. Uh, but I think for for this particular episode in in China, um, I would suggest you go and read this article by Reuters about the stories behind it. That will give you a picture of what exactly happened on, and, on the Lowdown Momentum Works blog, right? Uh, no, it's on it, it's a it's a Reuters article on the um, a Reuters article. Okay, yeah. Maybe I'll link it to the, the description. Yeah, yeah. And okay. we, we blocked about this as well, so we have our perspectives. And maybe it's a, it's a, it's worth yeah, reading def- as well. Definitely worth reading the momentum. I mean, I, f- I feel like a lot of people are are watching that and and value the opinion. So mm-hmm. the people should definitely check out the momentum works lowdown blog. Mm-hmm. Um, so I want to skip ahead. I, I'm going to skip this one section. Let's let's go straight to momentum works then. Mm-hmm. Um, in in your view, do you view many Rocket Internet alumni as too risk averse at heart? Or how do you think about that? I think Rocket gives you uh, adrenaline rush, but but still, I mean, the same as I comment about business schools, it doesn't change you as a person fundamentally. Uh, so, but and and the type of profile they end up hiring, do you think they end up are are the right kind of mindset profile in person? Because, like you said, it doesn't change you much as a person. But do you think they will be suited for entrepreneurship if you're a Rocket alumni? On on average, I think on average, from appetite point of view, you are you you you. I mean, it's it's much harder for you to actually go and work for a corporate. Let's put it that way. That's fair. Yeah, yeah. yeah and yeah. I guess so. And that kind of feeds into the story. Um, you know, you finished Easy Taxi. You did a little stint at Food Panda. What was the impetus and the main idea behind starting Momentum Works? Then, uh, being a Rocket Internet alumni, almost five years ago, back in 2016. Uh, I think lots of things were not planned. It just happened. So. And uh, for the better or for the worse, um, it just happened. So when I left Rocket, and I was basically consulting for a few friends' companies in different places, I was in, I was in the Middle, Middle East briefly, and etc. So one thing I did a lot in 2016 is is to to expand my exposure because I mean back to the point we mentioned, right? I mean you are you're so focused on your business, you're so focused yep. on your KPIs, you don't know what's there, what's out there. Correct, and uh, and you, you don't know what VCs, you don't know what other businesses have been built outside your your sector or your sort of adjacent sectors, mm-hmm. and and just um I, I think just to spend time just going around checking out different stuff and uh, and yeah I I remember for like from 2016 for a few a few years you were just literally flying every month right you were to a different country and I guess this was part of the outreach and learnings right you were meeting with friends VCs investors entrepreneurs founders across the world right. Uh, yeah, just just going around to see what was going on, and uh, and also, I think spent quite a bit of time sort of back and forth between China and Singapore. I think twenty sixteen, I was going back to China almost once every month for a week yeah. or so. So just so many things happened. So I guess out of this idea, you know, I guess coming from Rocket Internet being a venture builder, having consulting projects, I guess that kind of formed the foundation of what Momentum Works is now, right? Uh, it, it does. It does. Although, I mean. When I first started, I wanted to build an accelerator. So, so you, you thought about rocket, no, that's and right. you, you think about we have this operational experience, building structure, building team, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. 
and then you can you can sort of provide value by helping others to do that. But I think I dropped that fairly quickly because um, because you started meeting entrepreneurs, they realized that the real the real good entrepreneurs do not need your help. You know, that's a very good point because I I was listening to a podcast with Michael Siebel, Mm. the the CEO of Y Combinator. And he says the best way to get into Y Combinator is that you're going to, you're going to succeed no matter what with or without Y Combinator. And those are the people they accept. Right. So I mean, the same, the same thing you say about business schools, right? I mean, why do you go to a business school? You go to business school for the, for the reputation, for the alumni network. Yeah. And for the access and, uh, and, but it doesn't change you fundamentally. I mean, if you, so, so I mean, essentially what you're saying is like, you felt you couldn't add value. Like, just so you're telling me, like, if you're a founder who's not going to succeed, you can't, I mean, you got to give people time to grow and learn, right? So you're saying so, an accelerator couldn't make founders successful? No, I'm saying, I think the only accelerator that's successful is Y Combinator. I mean, you don't have anybody else. That's... There's some other ones. Um, only, a f- only a few, like less than five for sure. Yeah, very, very few. And, uh, and this is something I realized, right? I mean, you succeed as a as a <clears throat> accelerator not because you're great. I mean, just because that you are at the right time with the right people and you're better than everybody else with there at the same time. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you're you're hitting uh, the heart of you know, are, are you a good investor or not, or was it just because of timing, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's a that's a very sticky topic. And, and uh, the problem is because that you know, venture return takes multi decade years to to unfold. Yeah. You might you might just be in a bull run and you just got right timing instead of you thinking maybe you're a very good investor. You you can still do do stupid things when you're in a bull run, right? But of course, I mean, going with the wave is much easier than going against the wave. But to be fair, like you know, when when you're going against the wave and everything is down, if you can make it happen, then I guess that that means you have probably some type of edge, right? Uh, or it could also mean that the direction of the wind changed. And then it's just timing. Yeah, that's another way of looking at it. Yep, yep, yep. Um, and I, I guess that's the existential problem of being an investor, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, do, do, speaking of investors, uh, you went to China and you raised money for Momentum Works. Do you want to talk about the the investor behind that? Or um, I would not name uh, the person because, uh, because okay. he, he wants to remain low, a low profile. But uh, but the story is that I I, I met him at, at a conference and. Um, um, yeah, and and he was asking me, do I need money? And uh, I didn't have a fixed idea about how I wanted to run it, but uh, but I took the money anyway. So, so it's uh, it's a small sum, but uh, but but enough to get things started. In the end, uh, was that the right move? Uh, should you have had a better idea, a prototype, an MVP, and then taking the money, or what are your thoughts around raising money early? Um, I think that case is specific because it was it was for an individual who didn't want anything. He didn't want to board seat or whatever. So it's it's emotional pay. I trust that as a person and, uh, and mm. take some money. You, you might make something out of this, but, uh, but there's also a high chance that, uh, that this money is going to waste. So, so, so he's willing to... A lottery ticket, essentially. Yeah, back there. So, so, and of course, for some people, that uh, the ticket can be, can, be, can be a lot of money and they, they, it's okay. So, and, uh, I mean, he's a pretty high-profile guy in China. Is he still on the cap table, I'm assuming? Yes, he is. Okay, so, he's, so, so he could still at least be an advisor if needed, if things work out. Um, mm. To me, what was most impressive, though, I think across five years, at the peak, you know, your team size was what over fifty people, mm-hmm. and you have been able to feed people. and And I think what people don't understand is what entrepreneurship is like. Month to month, you were never really sure if you're going to be able to pay all these people, right? Yeah. Um. And and essentially, you you were doing multiple things for this big team across different business segments. So you had multiple business models running at the same time. 
Yeah, I mean, this is, this is something that, uh, I don't know, I mean, people always tell you to focus. Yes, correct. And, uh, but, but what happens if you don't know what the right focus is? So you go wide. You could diversify it in a way, yeah. And, yeah. Uh, I mean, in a sense, it was kind of like a learning journey too, right? So you, you kind of started out and at least you had some idea where you could make money because you were paying for 50 people. That's a big payroll, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, for not having a clear idea and you were, still be, you were still able to make money on a consistent basis. And I think, you know, like you said, the learnings and trying to figure out what to do uh, was really good eventually because, you know, after you try enough, you have enough data, you can then you kind of know where you want to focus on. Yeah, and 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 I think I think when I was looking at the the early days of Alibaba and the lots of things that 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 they were doing, were not sort of sort of uh, part of the strategy that, that they were they were going to uh, pursue is something that they stumbled upon and they said, okay, this makes sense. Let's put more resources in, into that. Yeah. So um, so of course, I mean, if if you know what's the right thing and uh, if that thing turns out to be right, I mean, having a razor sharp focus makes lots of sense. Uh, we, 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 you are not so certain. Um, I mean, it's, it's just, uh, it's just uh, whether, whether, whether you go all in with one stock or you, you want to have a portfolio. Correct. Yeah. And I guess you, you kind of went the, you kind of, you went in the mindset with trying to go broad and diversify and then hopefully mm -hmm. find that value to focus. Right. Yeah. Would you advise young founders who want to focus on like, you know, it's not a pain point, it's not coming internally, but they want to chase an idea that they think is right. Would you, would you advocate the approach you did or would you not advocate that approach? I think it depends on what kind of a uh, market environment you are in, right? I mean, yeah. it's, um, you somehow feel that in Southeast Asia, there's, there's much more tolerance about companies, right? I mean, you have companies which sort of know that are not going to make it, but they can still survive for two years before finally shutting down like zombies almost. Yeah. And because I, I, I can really plug into the ecosystem in China and see a lot of what's going on there. And uh, people there do not have that, that patience. I mean, founders mm. start a new project. And quite often, like up four, six months, they said, okay, this, I mean, it's almost like rocket, right? I mean, okay, this project is not going to you know, let's do something yeah. else. Yeah. Uh, which, which now people come to see as being okay. I mean, it's okay to fail. And, uh, yeah. and, uh, and because circumstances and everything. So, so success depends on lots of things. And as long as you still trust that person as, a, as, as capable and responsible. And, uh, and, and I do see people who, who fail like three or four projects over two years. And then the last one would sort of hit, hit on something and then grow big. Um, so let, let's be specific. Mm. Should, should they kind of follow your approach where you have one holdings company, but you try multiple business models? Mm. Or should they do it as a serial entrepreneur where they might fail in succession instead? I think it depends. It depends. So depends on the context. So, 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 so you, if you're able to quickly try out different different business models, and uh, and why not, right? I mean, just just, yeah. just focus all your attention on something. After two months, it doesn't work. Change or something else. Uh, I mean, that that's perfectly possible. I mean, it depends who you are working with, who who funds you, and uh, what kind of tolerance of risk and uh, and mm -hmm. yeah, the person has. Um, for me, I think it was specific because I didn't really have a uh, have a, have a particular sort of um, venture idea that I was very passionate about at the time. So yeah, so so, so that's why I went to the approach of so sort of um, spread a bit wide. This and especially having the blog and stuff, so so that you have lots of inbound uh, conversations going on. So so that helps you understand the ecosystem better, and and potentially if you choose to focus on something that. Uh, 
that at least you know that okay, this is more informed decision. It's not purely based based on on, on passion or or based on somebody telling you that this is a good market to to go into. Yeah, mm. I mean, like I think it's a very apt uh, comparison to marketing strategy. Mm. So, like when you're starting your first company, like and then you you start executing, you know, you have a good product and you want to start distributing mm. it, right? Uh, you're not going to know what is the best channel with the highest ROI until you go very wide first. Right. You got to pick as many. I mean, like you, like when you first start marketing, you shouldn't do everything because it's probably nothing's going to be good, but you have to go wide enough where you find the right channel, at least where you get a good enough return to start growing the, you know, the traction and the product market fit and growing the users. Right. So mm. in, in that kind of sense, it's, it's very similar to how you might approach marketing early stage, I guess. Mm-hmm. So like also, I, I don't know if you want to open up about this and you could tell me yes or no, but you know, by having a very wide focus, having a massive team, it came at a cost, right? A personal cost and how it made you feel. Of, um, and it was very stressful, right? Do you want to talk about that experience or no? Um, put it that way. So when you are a founder, you employ people, you convince people to join you and, um, and, and you, you sell a dream to people and people who otherwise have, a, I don't know, a better job, more comfortable job. At, mm-hmm. And especially people who give up their corporate jobs to, to to, to join something and um, and the mistakes you you make right the mistakes you make uh, it comes at at the, at the personal cost of those individuals and some yeah. and sometimes it's their fault sometimes it's not I mean but you can never say it's entirely whose fault right and it's circumstances and uh, and temper whatever so you you almost always end up like you no know, turning some friends into non friends. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's um, and, and and this is something I never understood when uh, I think my uncle was telling me when I was in high school because at some point I was so, so bored of the dorm, so I went to stay with my uncle for for a few weeks, and uh, yeah. and uh, and he was telling me that uh, try not to work with your friends on joint business ideas, mm. uh, and uh, and I sort of didn't really appreciate that back then, but now I appreciate that much more. Well, I, I have the counter argument to that is that I think most people are not ready of the mindset to get to those very uncomfortable spaces and conversations, or they don't have the tools or uh, mental models to how to approach those situations. So of course, if you don't have, if you're not ready to kind of em- embrace those harder aspects, if you do do it, it, it might end up very messy. I, um, but I, I do think it is possible. I mean, a, a perfect example is you're working with your wife, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah, I, I do agree with you. So, um, so, so I think a lot of that has, um, has something to do with, we get into something. Um, I think both parties tend to think about this thing in, in a very rosy way and it's surely good. Oh, of course. Surely going to work. And, 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 and ro- ro- rosy and different though, different types of rosy. And I do think that if you can be a little bit more upfront, think about all the things why you could fail and how you could fail and, uh, and, have have all all those things sort of prepared at least mentally, you'll make things much easier. Well, I also think it's just a function of communication. Like I, I think the reason why young people will not need, I mean, like I understand what you're saying, but at the same time, it serves them to be a little bit naive because if not, you would never try it. Yeah. If they only focus on a cynical, uh, you know, depending how risk averse they are, you know, they might not mm. have even attempted the idea, and then maybe timing and luck might not have happened. Right? So. It could, it could, it's a kind of like a balance of both, I guess, you know, like having, having those thoughts is important. And, but I think the more important bridge is the communication about that. Yeah, um, yeah. And like for me, my last uh, marketplace venture, you know, I, for me, it came at the cost of the wrong foundation. It came at the cost of, 
I, it's, I wouldn't say it's very crippling or bad or, you know, the, the worst kind, but I, it was some form of depression, mm. right? And it, it just was very heavy when things don't work out the way it is after working three years and be believing in an idea, mm. uh, but it's just not set up right. And then, um, I don't know, did, did you feel any depression too? And if so, like, how did you work through it and get past it? Sometimes you do. You do feel that uh, that at moments that, that you feel that the whole world is, is going against you. And um, and you feel that the perfect storm, storm is coming to you, like everything you do is wrong, and 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 every every external factor cons- sort of conspires against you together. So, so you do feel that. Um, yeah. But again, just like when you are investing in stock market, right? I mean, we see the first big dip, you get really sort of uh, anxious, nervous, stressed, or whatever. Yeah. But when you see it again, you say, okay, I've seen it before. Yeah, that's true. So essentially, what it's experience, time. Um, I mean, it's, it's almost like we see a major challenge, and you you want to feel bad about it, and your friends are going to to try to get you out of it. But un- unless it kills you, otherwise you'll be out of it. And uh, and and we see something similar. You know how to deal with it. Yeah, I mean, yeah. If if it's not something clinical or something bad, I think time, uh, maybe space away from it. Uh, talking to other people, getting support, you know, I think trying new experiences will definitely help pulling you out. Right. Mm-hmm. And then I think, you know, that's what happened. Momentum works. You guys were really big two, three years in mm-hmm. 50 people. Mm-hmm. And you had to, you know, kind of, fo- you finally found value where things might have a glimpse of really being big potential and you kind of had to scale back and refocus. Right. Well, I would say that it happened uh, a few times, like uh, you know, ups and downs and, uh, and, and, and you made it, Bet into something that, that that it works or it doesn't work, and uh, you have to make decisions. Right, and if it mm-hmm. doesn't work, you have to repurpose the people working on this project, or, or let some people go, or or have that difficult uh, difficult uh, discussion with uh, with the investors who put money with that specific project. So yeah, really tough, really yeah, tough. That, um, yeah. Okay, so the last topic I want to talk about is maybe your network, right? So, and I, I think you know your network has been a huge asset to Momentum Works. Mm-hmm. Um, you have been able to build great relationships across countries, across industries, and a huge range of people. Mm. Um, and I think a part of the challenge was learning to figure out how to reap value from it, build business models around that. Is that correct? Uh, you, you, in a way, is that uh, I mean, you spend lots of time sort of um, sort of talking to people, helping people, yeah, and learn try, trying to learn from people, and uh, also sort of trying to share with people what you have done uh, and uh, and what's the value of that because um, because you, you can easily spend lots of time on it. So what you're saying is you have to be doing something. You have to be solving some problem. And then only you can reach out to someone, right? I mean, there has to be some value, right? I mean, you, I mean either emotionally or practically that, uh, that, that the person you interact with, I mean, I mean, they benefit from this relationship. So, so let's say you start a new idea, a new venture. You have something of value. Mm. Uh, how, how do you go about approaching someone to to get them interested to talk to you? Because most of the time you're just meeting up to talk with people, and you know people don't advise that unless there's really something tangible for both sides, right? But it seems that to me like you're always meeting up and talking with someone, and you end up becoming friends, which then then, then it becomes a lot easier because it doesn't always have to be about a, a mutual exchange, right? Because sometimes you don't know, right? And contacts you make or sort of a knowledge that you acquire, I mean, might not be immediately useful. Um, and and then if you uh, a few years later, when you were trying to do something, say, okay, okay, I should know this person who can help you on that. I, Sorry, I, I have multiple experiences of, um, of of us trying to assess something. They should realize, hey, did, hey did this person I know will be an expert on this. And that person can give me mm-hmm. a very, very quick um, 
low downs about this and that, that's going to help make a better decision. And let's suppose, I mean, something similar is that uh, we are running a team. We don't have a, a position available. Do you keep recruiting? Do you keep interviewing people? Mm. And uh, I mean, that, that that's a lot. Of, that's one thing founders uh, really don't get. Young founders but not understand is that a huge portion of your time early on should always like, in a sense for you, it's like uh, just reaching out and building a network. But at the same time, it could also be used as a recruiting pipeline, right? I actually don't reach out as much nowadays. It's, it's basically people reaching reach out to me. So that, 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 that. <laughs> you create, you've created a platform where you got inbound. So that's great. <laughs> I mean, the, 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 that sometimes can be a burden, right? I mean, if, if someone asks you for that's help true. and you, you need to, to say no because uh, it's, it's beyond my capability or I don't have the time for that, et cetera, et cetera. But, but having that kind of um, breadth of things that, that allows you to see different things and meet different people. Um, quite often change your percep- um, um, perception when we deal with problems. Uh, and I mean, as long as, true. as long as it doesn't become your full-time job, right? I mean, it's, it's something that's on top of, of what you are doing and you spend some extra time on it. So the, the way I view it is that um, earlier on in your career, you invested an inordinate amount of time, especially after Rocket, to kind of reach out, learn, uh, solve problems, and then and then kind of build those connections. And then, you know, if you do that enough early on, then it can pay dividends later. Because mm. I guess these days, what percentage of time do you still spend reaching out and meeting people? Oh. Less than half? Less than half. Well, still, that's still a lot. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that's probably a lot more than I expected than you said, because you said you're barely doing that these days. But uh, I, yeah. guess, I guess if people want to build a powerful network, you have to put the work in. Uh, you have mm. to create something of value. You have to, you know, it's it's a matter of just trying out, trying it out, and reaching out. And then, you know, you're not sure if it will pay off or not. But it's, it's again, it's about building that relationship. And then I think, you know, later on, the dividends will come, right? Yeah, but, but, and, uh, and also, I think sometimes we don't put, um, um, we, we, we 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 don't we, we do not try to to measure everything. Of course, of course, come a little bit more more naturally, and um, yeah, and and it's it's easy for you to to see clarity. Yeah, you're not obsessed with uh, with just that KPI that you need to pursue. That's a good point. It's a good point. You always have to look more broadly and and see the things that that may pay off later and far further down, not not always immediately. Um, for for the last question, then, uh, what, what what do you think? Like in today, what is the most absolute imperative of what founders, entrepreneurs, investors should be focusing on in the Asia region that will have a great impact for the the near term future? It's a big topic. I mean, if you look at Southeast Asia, it's very different from China. It's very different from India. And uh, if you consider Middle East as part of Asia, it's also different, right? So it's a good point. Um, let's let's pick one country or one region then that you think that's most interesting. I think uh, I think just where we are, that's Southeast Asia, right? I mean, yeah. You so last. I mean, last few years you see lots of entrepreneur uh, activity going on, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and and quite often the infrastructure was not ready, and um, but now you have the infrastructure which is more or less ready for that. Yeah. Um, for lots of things, and I, I, I do believe that the lots of things which can be built, there's still lots of problems to be solved. Um, so so yeah, I, I, I believe that there are opportunities. Um. There are obviously enormous amount of challenges, right? I mean, yeah. finding the right people could be very challenging. But uh, so, so in terms but, of so in terms of supply and demand, I think what I'm understanding, it's probably better to be a builder and a founder at this point in time. I think definitely easier to be a founder than being an investor. Mm. I mean, I, yeah. I, I'm inclined to agree with you. I think at this point in time, Southeast Asia is very exciting. I think you know mm. what we've mm. done for the past ten years have built this a uh, big foundation and in infrastructure. Uh, mm. across all our networks. And, and you're right. I think the opportunity now is just getting more and more interesting where we start to mature 
and uh, it's a good time to be a founder. Essentially, is is the answer, right? Mm -mm. I do believe that, uh, that 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 for young people, I mean, you should always put yourself in in a situation where the the growth, right? I mean, either growth of the sector, either growth of the of the company that you, you're working or your company you are you, you are you are starting, or, or, or growth of the economy in general. Yeah. Okay. So the uh, the last thing then is you know uh, is there anything you want to plug or anything you want to tell us that Momentum Works is working on, and then and how can people reach out to you if they're interested in connecting with you? Oops. Um, yeah, I think I think one thing during COVID uh, is that that forced us to slow down to, to, to think about I mean, the different things that we have done and what makes sense, what doesn't make sense. I mean, how do we communicate to people what we do, right? I mean, yeah. previously it's always people coming to us saying, "Hey, can you do this?" Ah, we can. Oh, we can't. Or maybe we can. Yeah. So, um, so, so, so now I think we get the we get quite a bit of a clarity. So, um, so we're still building, um, and um, so, so, so I. I I mean, I, I think I will always have like one which at hand that 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 that, that, that I'm, I'm putting my, my, my time and attention on. So uh, from a momentum works point of view, so so I mean, we do content. That's our blog. Just check it out. I mean, the lowdown English and uh, what's the and website? We also have a it's tld.momentum.asia. Okay, TLD, TLD stands for the, yeah. the lowdown. TLD.momentum.asia. Okay. Yep. 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 And and we also uh, start, uh, started like, like a research team to put all these these disparate pieces of information together to try to make sense. So they've come out with a few reports this year. I mean, we're, um, there's a price tag for, for some reports, but but the real, the, the, the real intention is not to become a research house. It's it's just to, I mean, first help us. I mean, have a better understanding about the market, and 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 second, like propagate this message um, to help people uh, look at uh, at the different. Parts of this market as it is, I and mean, not too rosy, not too pessimistic. I mean, what exactly is this market? Mm -hmm. What's the connection between different factors, and how can you make your make decisions that will that will you will not regret, like in, like a few years later, saying that hey, I, I wish I knew this thing about this market, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, what, what else could people connect connect to you for that would be a value for Momentum Works and for them? Mm. Oh. Um, we are uh, we are building a uh, community app where, um, where where people can sort of sort of constantly share um, share gossips, share share information, and ask questions and stuff. And uh, so so we've been running a few um, WeChat and WhatsApp groups um, as a hobby, and they're, uh, they're growing quite big. There's some really really good interactions, and uh, and uh, and people find value in it. Sort of um, getting the questions on. Answered and um, and finding the right contacts and stuff. <laughs> we just feel that um, that uh, it's time for us to, to maybe do it a little bit more properly because um, because there's still also limitations with the WhatsApp information. But of course, that's the experiment. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So essentially, check out the community app, which is what's the key, what's the app called? Uh, Impulso, which is uh, the Spanish uh, name for momentum. Okay, what Impulso. I M P U L S O. Yes, uh, it's still been tested, but uh, we expect to to um, to have that ready for public release by end of the year. So, 
so, so the idea is that I mean, we we, we, we verify whoever who joins the, the platform. Yeah. That once they join, they can they can choose to be anonymous. I I can guarantee uh, I can vouch for the quality of the the, the learnings in the network. You know, the, the group is super active. Uh, I, I wish I could be more. I should be more active on there as well. But uh, the, like it's yeah. you know the, the latest news, the latest uh, ideas of founders, investors, and entrepreneurs, literally across all the countries from China to all the way down to Indonesia, everywhere in, in Southeast Asia. Um, so definitely, I think you should join a community. Um, I guess, are, are you looking for investors or investment or anything like this? Uh, we are planning some venture and, uh, and I think when time's right, we'll probably start looking for, for investors. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, but I think, I think over the years we've learned that, uh, that we, we do ventures I mean, timing is super important. Mm, yes. And quite often you don't want to be the, you don't want to be the, the first mover that spends all the effort to educate the market without being able to occupy the market. Which means you need to raise a crazy amount of money. And if you can't do that, you probably just help someone else educate the market. Yeah, and yeah. Put that way, if you can't sustain your momentum, then, 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 then you will see others leapfrog. Yes, because you, you've helped validate and get the early cohort and then they have the resources to take over, right? You have, you have so many examples here <laughs> in Southeast Asia. Yeah. 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 Okay. Well, I think that's a great place to end. Thank you for your time today, Jangan, And I hope you enjoyed the experience. It's been a pleasure. Okay. Thanks, Alex. All right. We'll All right. Thank you. Hey, listeners. Thanks for listening to another episode of EOA. If you enjoyed this content, please rate and review on all your app stores and share it with your friends and family. All the engagement and sharing helps us a lot. Feel free to contact me at alex at entrepreneursofasia.com to give some direct feedback. What have I learned this episode? If you listen very closely, the theme of going off tangents and being extremely pragmatic have served Jangan well along his journey of entrepreneurship. What can be seen as a weakness can be honed and mastered into a strength if one is mindful of it. I also learned that China is a massively complex beast and it's very hard to have a one-dimensional view without considering the full ecosystem and its stakeholders. Just like a good journalist or entrepreneur, always consider the other viewpoints and data before coming to conclusions. Even though things may not be clear, you can still find a path just like how Jiang did in Founding Momentum Works. While it's contrary to some advice, People will always ask you to focus first and find real pain points. Jagan has shown a different path of going wide and then later discovering the focus along the journey. I think not many can pull this off and survive and thrive for as long as Momentum Works has in this kind of method, but the older I get, the more you realize there are many types of paths to success. See you guys back here for next week's episode. EOA out.